Yeah, peace. I love peace. I'd be out of a job with peace. Do we know each other? people in the room that don't understand. Not me, I, I get it. Who are you? The name's Captain Carter. Scheisse! I am the Watcher. I observe all that transpires here. But I do not, cannot, will not interfere. I guess I have to freestyle then. Hey! We have you out of bird. A ravager never flies solo. I said never flies solo. Uh, is that some kind of catchphrase? You had me worried for a second. Journey to face the unknown and ponder the question. What if? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, this should be pretty cool. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spatero, and sitting next to my metaphorical, I don't know, left or right, wherever you are, it's Scott Gardner. Hi, how's it going? Oh, you're so excited. <laughs> it's I am going excited. well. I, I didn't expect you to be all bubbly. Are you drinking over there? What's going on? <laughs> no, nah, it's too early for that. But give it time. <laughs> I'm so, just in a good mood. 
We're gonna we're gonna take a break in a minute just to talk a little comic bullshitting, but you know, just to give you the focus on what we're doing today. Today is a score episode uh, with Woo-hoo. the recently launched What If series from uh, you know on Disney Plus. Uh, we're gonna look at two issues of What If you know, the classic series, and we're going to do a quick top five. Uh, in theory, I'm going to just throw this out there, and then we'll uh, we'll tease it, and then we'll move on for a little comic talk. But in theory, I passed up on my number one and went with my number two because I thought our number one was going to be the same. And then when we exchanged what books we were covering and you gave me your number one, it isn't even on my top five, even though it's a good book. <laughs> so, funny. So what will be my number one will eventually... I'm going to have to do it on another show at some point. Well, what's really funny is that, um, you know, it's, it's always funny how shows evolve from the idea stage to the, to the final product. But when I proposed, I think you proposed the actual what if idea, you know, doing a score episode for it. But when I proposed doing the top five, I, I knew what a couple of them were going to be right off the top of my head. But the one that I thought, was going to be my number because it's the first one that came to my mind it's the first issue that always comes to my mind when i think of what if actually turned out not to be the the one that i'm going to cover it's not my number one after all after really going and examining uh my top five i I decided to kind of flip-flop my one and two but they're they're so close to each other um but it just i i was really struck by how funny that was that wow you know this book that i've always thought of as my favorite issue it's actually surpassed by this other issue just a little bit, um, you know, for different reasons, but we'll, we'll get into all of that. But, uh, yeah, so neither of us is doing our number one as it turns out, <laughs> but again, we'll, we'll get back to what if in just a second, I think you had some, uh, some just basic comic talk that you wanted to do. I did. I had promised, uh, on our Facebook group last night that, uh, that I would tell this story. So, uh, so here it is. I was just I was so so amused by one of the comments uh, on a, uh, I had an incredible score yesterday. I'm just a, a, you know an absolutely uh, amazing uh, purchase that I made on some back issues yesterday. And uh, one of the comments just struck me as so funny that I, I told the person that uh, okay I, I'll I'll tell the story on the show. Hopefully hopefully you guys will be as amused by this and not like shocked or repulsed by what I did. But here here it goes. So uh, last weekend, my wife uh, says, hey, you know this this place keeps popping up on Facebook for me. And it says it's an antique mall, you know, let's go check it out type of thing. And she knows I love those kind of places. And it's funny because she usually really doesn't like those kind of places. But she knows I like to go and bargain. I love, like, yard sales and flea markets and antique malls and stuff like that. It's not really her thing. So I should have realized that something was up, but I totally didn't. You know, I thought she was on the up and up. You thought she was just being nice? (laughs) Exactly. You know, so we get in the car, we drive, I don't know, it was like 45 minutes or something. And we go to this place and long story short, it was not what it was sold to me as. Essentially, it was like a redneck uh, Kirkland's or something like that. You know, it was (laughs) it was nice, you know, for like her for, you know, girly stuff and, you know, home decor and all that. But there were no antiques there. There were definitely no comics, anything like that. So I was kind of bummed. And then I got to thinking 
um, while we were driving, I remember seeing signs uh, for Lakeland, and it started tickling my brain about this place that our buddy Scott Rifen had told me about. And so I plugged it into the GPS, and it was a, a fairly short drive from where we were to go check this place out. <laughs> so it's, it's, you dragged so, me to this shithole. So now I'm gonna make you go to go to this, this right. comic store. <laughs> so you know, I, I put that in, and we're driving there, and as we're headed to this place, um, the the we we were in a place we'd never been before. So so you know, figuring out the traffic and all that was a little confusing. So we ended up like bypassing it initially, and had to go down and turn around to go you know to come at it from the other side. And as we did, we spotted this shopping mall, and we were both starving to death at this time. So we're like, you know what? Let's go in the mall and just, you know, check out the food court, grab something to eat, use the bathroom, that sort of thing. So we go into the mall, and we wandered the whole mall. And when we had initially walked in, it was just we were both. This happens to us every time we go to malls. Now we both start lamenting like the death of the American mall because I, I haven't been to a mall in years that didn't look like it was just dying a slow, painful death. It just breaks my heart because I grew up in malls. I worked in a lot of malls, that sort of thing. So anyway, we're walking through the mall when we first got there and way down at the end of one leg of the mall was you know what used to be like one of the anchor stores and we had thought it was one of those spirit america stores you know the halloween stores because it had this, this halloween merch in front of it and it was clearly it was like a you know it, it just looked like you know costumes and that sort of thing so we bypassed it but then as we were leaving after we ate and everything we're leaving them all we walked back back past it again and my wife said, I want to go down and check that out real quick. And I was like, okay. And I was like, well, you know, why? So we wandered down there. And it turns out it wasn't one of those places at all. It was, um, it's kind of hard to describe. It was like a salvage store. It was like a cross between, it was like if, uh, if like Goodwill and Ollie's had a baby. It was kind of like that. It was like an. It was like nicer than a Goodwill, but not as nice as an Ollie's. If you even consider Ollie's nice, you know. And it was just. It was a lot of just stuff. It was a lot of junk. It was a lot of like expired food. It was, you know, it was. Yeah. It was just this mishmash <laughs> of just shit, you know. But we're wandering through, and in this one section, they had um, comics and collectibles. And it was, I mean, you, you really have to picture, I mean, it's just, it's a jumble. There is shit everywhere, you know, just boxes of stuff, you know, there's furniture, there's just all this stuff everywhere. So the, the boxes of comics were literally just like jammed in these boxes and they're turned every which way. They were upside down, they were backwards, some, you know, the covers were all messed up. So going through these boxes was a real chore. But up on the wall, because um, this, this had been a department store at one time, so it's like back where it was like a counter area type of thing in this one department, up on the wall, they had put all these comics up there. And you know, having a comic shop mindset, you know, being a comic collector, to me, up on the wall, those are the expensive books. You know, and I noticed certain books up there and I was like, ooh, you know, I wonder what they're asking for those. But I didn't see any prices on anything and you couldn't get to it. There was so much shit in the way 
you couldn't actually get very close to it to see what you know any of the prices were on anything if there were prices on anything. So I, I kind of you know made a mental note of what books were up there and everything. But then I dug through the boxes that were there and, you know, picked out my books and everything, not knowing what anything cost because there was no prices on anything. So anyway, long story short, you know, we, we finally you know, we, we made our purchases. I go up to the front with a couple of comics that I'd picked out of the boxes and the lady rang them up and they were a dollar a piece. I'm like, oh, wow, this is awesome. You know, just a buck a piece. So I asked her about the books that were up on the wall. And she was very nice, but she made it very plain that, like, she ain't getting up on no damn ladder to go get them, right? It was just one of these things like, oh, I don't really know what they're asking for those. You know, it was very dismissive, like, oh, I, I have no idea. So I'm like, huh, okay, you know, and I'm thinking by, by what these books were, they're probably expensive. They're probably more than I'd be willing to pay. So, okay, whatever. So, you know, we go home. So several days go by and – we had eventually made it to the place that that we were setting out to go, the, the antique mall that Rifen had told me about. Well, we went, and by the time we got there, we only had a couple hours to look around, and that place was friggin' massive, and they had tons of comics. So I'd been wanting to go back for like a week. So yesterday, I really didn't have anything going on. I you know I got all my chores done and everything. I had some free time. My wife was working all day, so I thought I'm going to drive back there. She's not not got any interest in in watching me you know go through comics, so I'm going to go back to that antique mall. So I drove all the way back down there, and as I was pulling into the town again, I was like, you know, I'm going to go back to that mall and I'm going to find out about those comics because I, I I hadn't been able to put them out of my brain. So I went back into that shop and I walk in and I can't find anybody that works there. There's like, there's like nobody in the store, right? So I go back to that section and those books are still up on the wall. And then I got to realizing that I thought that that section was blocked off because there, there were like these two big glass counters in front of that section and it looked like they were forming a barrier, like they didn't want you to be able to get too close to that section or something. And then I realized that's not really the case at all. There's just so much shit in the way. So I found a way to go back behind those counters to where I could be closer to the section where the, where the comics were way up on the wall. So I did that and I was able to basically stand underneath them and look up at them on the wall. And I'm looking and I still don't see any prices on anything. And I'm looking around. I don't see anybody in there. So I finally decided you know what? Screw it. I'm going to get a chair and I'm just going to put, pull down the issues that I want. So I went and I found a chair and I stood up on there and I started pulling down, you know, the issues that interested me or whatever. And I figured the worst that could happen is somebody's going to be like, hey, asshole, what are you doing? You know, but no, <laughs> nobody challenged me. Nobody said anything. I never saw anybody at all. So I pulled down the books that I was interested in. And I took them up to the counter and I'm thinking, surely, you know, there, there's no prices on anything. We'll, we'll just see what happens. Right. So I go up there and this is the first person I'd seen since I went into the place. And it was this young, like totally disinterested teenage girl. Right. Working the, the cash register. So she takes my books. She gives them a cursory glance. She rings everything up. She gives me my total. And it was a dollar a piece. 
So here's what I got. I got Brave and the Bold, number 55 from 1964. This is a 12 center, Metal Men and the Atom. I got House of Mystery, number 188. This is from, I think, 1970. Um Beautiful. I'm pretty sure it's a Neil Adams cover on this, but I wanted it because it's uh, Tony DiZaniga inside. The Spectre, number 10, last issue from 1970. That's a 12 center as well. And then this was the book I couldn't get out of my mind. And I, I cannot believe I bought this for a friggin' dollar yesterday. Swamp Thing, number one. The original one from 72, I want to say. And number six, Swamp Thing number six as well. But the number Swamp Thing number one, that's the book that caught my eye. That's the book I really wanted. And uh, and I cannot believe I got it for a buck. So I posted the pictures and, you know, I didn't give any explanation or anything. I just said, hey, I got these, you know, can you believe it for a dollar each? And one of our one of our Facebook group uh, members, uh, Griffith. Hurtenstein, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He says, "Who the fuck's out there selling Swamp Thing number one for a dollar?" <laughs> and I was just so tickled by that comment. I was like, "I got to tell this story." So, you know, I, I don't well, know. Now, now does, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna press you on this. Just and and it's not meant to put you really in a bad position, but I, <laughs> I, I know this is the question that occurs to everybody, and I'm gonna give you the hypothetical that they present, and I'm gonna ask you, does it apply to this? Is the hypothetical they present is you know you go to a garage sale to some old woman selling books, you know oh these were my husband who died 30 years ago whatever, and it's an Action Comics number one and she has it for a buck, uh, <laughs> you know are you morally obligated to say hey? I'm sorry, I can't do this to you. I'm not going to take this from you for a buck. Uh, and I think universally in that situation, people say, yeah, that's not really right. Uh, in this situation, does that apply? I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm thinking it's different in this because it's a business. You know, if it was like you say, your, your scenario, the little old lady or, you know, just the, the person, you know, the kid, the person, whatever – at a garage sale, because I have done that, you know, I, I mean, not an action number one, obviously, but I have done that <laughs> where I've pointed out to people like, hey, you know, that that's actually worth a lot of money or whatever. Um, I'm trying to think if there was ever a time I did that with something I was actually purchasing from the person, though, or if it was just one of those things like I, I don't need it. I already have it. What type of thing? And just pointing out that, hey, you, you can get a lot more than you're asking out of that. I, I can't remember if I've ever done that. I probably have because, yeah, that sort of thing, I, I would have a guilty conscience about it. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's up to others to judge. Maybe I'm just, you know, justifying. But to me, it was like, I you know, I feel like I did my due diligence. You know, I asked and they, you know, the person I talked to was totally disinterested in, in helping me. I mean, they to me, it's like if you inquire about something like that, that means you're interested. It's like, you know, you ask follow up quite well. Are you interested? Would you like to purchase it? Would you like me to find somebody to get it down off the wall for you? None of that. It was totally like, no, nah, I have no idea what they're, you know, and that was it. She just, you know, totally dismissed me. And, you know, I mean. Anybody that that worked there, if there was anybody besides this one girl, should have seen me get up on a freaking chair, risking my personal safety because it was a rickety old antique chair, 
you know, to pull these things down. Plus, if you didn't want to sell it for a dollar, why wasn't there a price on it? None of them had a price on them. And, you know, so it was it was that combination of factors. To me, it was like and I, I I'm, I'm going to agree this. with you, by the way. So uh, <laughs> because because realistically, when you when you run through the scenarios in your mind, the reality of it is the people you spoke to really couldn't have cared less about it. Exactly. And if you if you had said, hey, I can't do this, this isn't right, I'm not going to take this for a buck, they would have left it up there on the wall and somebody else would have come by and bought it for a buck and then, you know, it would have been your loss. Exactly. They wouldn't have gotten any more money out of it because they were disinterested. Yep, exactly. Well, I also noticed, and I didn't notice this the first time I was there because I was just struck by you know the Swamp Thing number one and a couple other books I was interested in, but I did notice it the second time when I went back. Th this is actually, I think, what emboldened me to go ahead and get them down off the wall is that I, you know, again, being a comics person, when I see comics on the wall, I think comic shop. Those are the expensive books. And I noticed the second time around that it really was a mishmash of comics. And there was I couldn't tell you a specific comic off the top of my head. I should have made more of a note. But there were definitely comics up there that were completely worthless. You know, it's like, I don't know, like Star Ears or, you know, some some image book from the 90s. You know what I'm talking about? So mm -hmm. it, it was just a, it was like somebody had just picked a handful of comics and put them up there as a display to say, hey, kids, comics. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like these were the the, the hand-picked expensive books that we don't want to just let go for a dollar because there were definitely books up there that weren't even worth a quarter. So that that also made me feel better about the whole thing. So, um, but you know, the moral of the story, in my opinion, is you know don't be afraid to <laughs> to you know to, to take risks to be like. All right, you know, don't just, you know, accept situations at face value because, you know, if if I had just gone with the lady's disinterest and everything, I, I you know, I'd have missed out on a on a really good deal with this and I'm glad I went back and was like, screw it, I'll I'll get them down myself. And uh and it worked out. So, so there you go. All right. Yeah, I I like I said, I I think you you just, you know, you happen to be the lucky one in this instance that that got there first, because right. that's that's all it would have taken. You know, like I said, I think if you would, if you if you even even if you explain to this young girl why she shouldn't sell it to you for a dollar, I don't think you were going to get a true, you know, a, a, a reaction that you should have gotten. Uh, I think it would she would have shrugged her shoulders and left it up there on the wall, and somebody else would have come by and bought it for a buck. I, I really definitely. Do. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, just by this girl's completely bored and disinterested demeanor, I think even if I'd have said, you know, I got this out of your dollar bin, but this is worth, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I don't even know what it's worth. I know it's worth more than a dollar, but if I'd have said, you know, this is like a fifty dollar book or whatever, a hundred dollar book, I think she'd have been just like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's still a dollar, you know. If well, it she might have taken like it and bought it herself for a buck, place, that might be. A <laughs> I'm sorry, what'd you say? She might have taken it and bought it for herself for a buck. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, if it had been like the owner of the business or something, maybe that would be a different story. But, yeah, this this teenage girl obviously could care less. Or the lady I dealt with the first time, the older lady, she was super nice, but she could care less about, you know, the comics. So, yeah, 
I mean, I, I think that was just kind of the nature of their place. You know, they were more about selling, you know, the high end items, you know, the furniture and all the, you know, the, just all the other crap they had in there. The comics were kind of just, you know, by the way that section was laid out, by the way that it was treated, by the condition of the books that were not up on the wall, it was obvious that it was just like these comics had fallen into their lap and then they were just trying to get rid of them for as, you know, as cheap as possible, you know, a buck a piece just to get rid of them type of thing. That was my impression anyway. Yeah, I think but anyway, was probably correct. <laughs> Enough on that. We're uh, we Let's get back get- to some what if. Yeah, let's get into the meat and potatoes. I just, I just, well, I just fun. wanted to talk about what if as a general concept before we start going into our top fives. And, and sure. you know, I guess we, we're going to go through the top fives quick because we got to do two, uh, two book reviews. Uh, but as a concept, I loved what if right from the start, from the first issue. And I was thinking about this, like, what is it that I really like? And what I really do like is when it, it's an issue where they take something that's truly established in Marvel history and then you you know you you do the uh you know the one little change and see how the how how the dominoes fall and that ultimately it's 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 something where like if you're rooting for the characters uh you know if 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 it's Spider-Man and you want you know it's what if Spider-Man was happy all the time uh you know you're rooting for him so you're thinking oh that's good i love when there's always like a little bit of a twilight zone uh monkey paw twist at the end where all of a sudden it's like you know what it's even worse than you thought it would be you know i I just (laughs) i I get a kick out of those books uh more so than the ones that end in a happy ending the happy ending ones are you know they're good they're nice they make you feel warm all over but then you, you usually i find that those are more forgettable as time goes on i like to see that the uh you know those changes in in what happened become like a major thing and that's where what if eventually lost me because you know they would do the infinity war and then two weeks after the infinity war they'd have what if so-and-so won the infinity war it's well it's two weeks later you know you don't have any history and lore to 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 vary and to show us how it's going to change i think they they kind of ran out they ran out of viable ideas that were presented or they got lazy and stopped coming up with viable ideas or they underestimated their audience and think their audience wouldn't be on board for things that go more you know, deeply into the history. Or, yet another possibility, because continuity has become less important to them over the years, uh, they're afraid that they can't, even conf- they can't even change the continuity because they've already done it so many times that it's meaningless. Right. And that's why What If doesn't work for me anymore, but used to. I really enjoyed What If, um, but it's funny, you know, I, I I started coming into comics. I mean, really started getting heavily into comics, buying comics off the rack, that sort of thing, uh, you know, in the early 80s, like 80, 82, 83. And by that point, uh, What If had been running for quite a while. So I didn't have a, a lot of the familiarity with the the Marvel history and the Marvel backstory. You know, I'd grown up more a DC kid. Um, so a lot of I, I was very, very, very selective with What If. Um, and I was it's funny, as I was looking to make this list, it occurs to me 
that the original What If series only ran, I think, 47 issues. And of those 47, I've really only read a, a small handful of them. And it's because at the time, I just wasn't really that familiar with a lot of the concepts they were doing, like, uh, you know, ones like, uh, you know, what if uh, Electra had lived or whatever. Well, I wasn't reading Daredevil. I didn't really know, you know, that, you know, those type of stories. So it, it really occurs to me that I need to go back and really look more heavily at that series and, and kind of fill in the gaps of the ones that I haven't read. Because at one point, I, I think I had pretty much a, a complete collection of What If. It's just a matter of I, I hadn't really actually read uh, as many of them as I thought that I did. But I had a question for you. Was there uh, ever a, a What If concept that you wanted them to explore like when you were a kid or whatever that they, they never did do. That's interesting. Uh, I wouldn't have minded sequels to certain issues. Um, probably, I guess it's probably the number three on my list. I wouldn't have minded a sequel to it. Uh, so I, I would have liked to have seen where they might have gone with that, just because it was—I I thought it was a cool one—and we'll get to that one uh, for obvious reasons. We're going to get to it, um, but most of them, I think, most of them were more self-contained and didn't really call for a sequel. Uh, so, and and the the one that I'm actually going to cover, they did explore further, and you'll know about that when we get to it. I hate to be so cryptic, but I don't want to give away my list yet. Um, right. And then there's, there's, there's two on my list that they did kind of explore further. Uh, actually three, three out of my five, they did explore further and the others were more self-contained and I don't really see the need. Um, so that's my long winded way of saying not really. Well, I definitely had one, um, and <laughs> you're probably going to laugh when you hear this, but you have to remember my my gateway drug into comics, and you know my my top of the top of the stack pull, you know every, every you know purchase every month was Marvel Star Wars, so I always wanted them to do, and I don't know why I had I was obsessed with the idea that there was a good story in here somewhere. I, I have no idea why to this day. I, I don't remember what I thought that, that the great story could be, but the one I always wanted to see. And I remember I actually wrote a letter that I don't think ever got published or anything, not that I ever saw, but I actually did write a letter to what if or to Marvel you know, uh, proposing the idea was what if Ben Kenobi, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi had lived and like I say, I have no idea why as a kid I was obsessed with that's a really good what if story, <laughs> but I, that's the one that that's always stuck in my mind that I, I wish that they had done. I, okay, I that's don't know why. I they, think I misinterpreted your question there because I thought you were saying one that they did that I would have liked to have seen them go further as opposed to one that they just never did that I would have liked to have seen them do. Uh if I gave it more thought, I could, I'm, I'm sure I could come up with concepts for possible what-if issues that, you know, could make for interesting stories. But again, I think those are ones that would go for, you know, old-timers who are really into the continuity and where it went, you know? Right. So, you know, there's definitely things, you know, milestone moments in Marvel history that they did not get to that I would have liked to have seen. 
Right. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the Star Wars idea you had, which would be cool to see, uh, but I'm sure that one was probably subject to all sorts of licensing things that, you know, they might not have been able to do it in the What If series. Probably something that they could have done in the uh, in the regular ongoing if they wanted to. It's certainly something they can yeah. do now, now that they own Star Wars. Well, eventually there was uh, at least three that I know of Star Wars what ifs, for lack of a better term. They were called Star Wars Infinities, where they did do what if stories. That wasn't one of them, unfortunately, but uh, but they did do uh, you know a Star Wars version of what if, um, and th- those were kind of interesting as well. I don't know if you've ever read any of those. Um, no, I but I think we are ready for uh, for our top five list. So. W- just for uh, organization's sake, where does your book that you're covering fall on your top five? Uh, it's number one. Oh, it is your number one. I thought you said it wasn't. Okay, uh, mine well, is my no, number the, the two. Book that I, <laughs> the book that I that I thought was my natural going to be naturally my number one, I, I ended up it, it's not my number one after all. So. Oh, okay. So that's I know it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, so what I'm what I'm going to do when we go over the list is I'm actually going to I'm going to give you five, four, three, one, and then I'll save my number two, which is the book I'm going to cover for the last. Well, let, let's just let's just back and forth it from five down to one, and then we'll we'll give the ones that we're actually going to cover. Is that okay? That so, work? so we'll do it in the actual order then. That's fine. So I'm going to give you my number yeah. five is. What if number nine? What if the Avengers fought evil during the, uh, the during the fifties? Which I just thought was a pretty cool concept. And, and I'm gonna, you know, I guess I'm gonna start with every one of them. Yeah, I thought this was a cool concept. But what they did was they put together an Avengers team in the 1950s with with heroes that theoretically existed in the fifties. You had um, what was a Marvel Boy, 3D Man, Venus, Gorilla Man, and the Human Robot. Now I know. 3D Man was actually created in Marvel Premiere. Uh, so he was created as a character that lived in the 50s, but the comic didn't exist in the 50s. Uh, but the other ones, I'm pretty sure, all did exist in the 50s. And they, like I said, they created an, an Avengers team and, uh, you know, gave, gave us a, a story. And it, it was involved with Jimmy Woo was the uh, agent from, I don't even remember if it was S.H.I.E.L.D. at the time. Uh and this is one of the ones where, where I was saying they did end up following up on it because they did have a 1950s Avengers miniseries that came out eventually, which was, I think actually they had two miniseries, and it was pretty cool. Um, but there was question what? whether or not this was Earth 616 or not. And eventually, according to uh, Wikipedia, they determined that it was not. And uh, it was apparently Earth 9904, and it was destroyed by Immortus huh. in uh, Avengers Forever. But it, you know, we did end up with a similar retcon team in the 616 universe. Is that the Agents of Agents something? of Atlas. Atlas, that was it. Yeah, because that, I, I thought that spun out of this. So It, it that, did, that's... it did, but it didn't. That's okay. <laughs> really what it comes down to. Uh, I thought I thought it totally spun out of this too until I saw that that footnote. I I I think we have to cover uh, 
in-depth Avengers Forever at some point because yes. that, that yeah, apparently, yeah, you know, right. I I kind of I kind of read it, but I didn't, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of, uh, for lack of a better comparison, a lot of Crisis on Infinite Earth type things uh, that they do to clarify history and, and you know, with and conflicts yes. in history. Uh, so I think I think that one might be worth giving a, you know, single issue one one through twelve, you know, and do twelve episodes on it over the course of time. Absolutely, I, I would I would totally be down for that because while a lot of that went over my head because I'm not as steeped in the lore as like say uh, you know DC and like the Crisis or something like that, um, I still really enjoyed it and and I learned a lot from it and. I like the passion of uh, the author on that. Who I'm struggling to remember. is it Busick that did that? I think, I think it was. You know what? In my head, I was saying Mark Wade, but I think it was Busick. I'm, I'm... I know it's one of the two because Wade was the other one. I was thinking it. Might, it's one of the two. It's either Mark Wade or Kurt Busick, or maybe both of them together. I forget. But you know, just the the author's passion for the project really shone through in that, and uh, and I enjoyed it a lot. I actually learned quite a bit from that. So yeah, good one. I that's one I have not read, but I, I would like to. All right, so my number five is what if number nineteen. It's cover build as what if Spider Man had never become a crime fighter, but it's actually entitled inside the book What if Spider Man had stopped the burglar who killed his uncle. Um, this is a February 1980 issue. It was written by Peter Gillis with art by uh, Pat Broderick and Mike Esposito. And I actually reread everything from my top five list just to kind of refresh myself and make sure were they still worthy to, uh, you know, to make the top five list. And that one I was kind of surprised to find um, wasn't as high on my list as, as I initially thought it would be because I always had really fond memories of that one. It is fun. It's it's a really good book, but it, it's a it's a little sillier too because uh, essentially what happens is when Spider-Man is presented the opportunity to to stop the guy who whatever he had done, what did he he had like robbed the payroll or something at the beginning of that story, the guy that would eventually kill Uncle Ben, right. Whatever it was, he he actually stops the guy when when he has the opportunity. That's that's the variance point. So he stops the guy, and because he stops the guy, he continues his television career and he becomes a, a huge star. So much so that he starts signing other Marvel heroes to exclusive like movie deals and stuff. So he becomes the agent of like Daredevil and and these other characters, and eventually. Um, he still comes into conflict with J. Jonah Jameson uh, because Jameson, I forget why exactly in that particular story. Uh, oh, I, I know what it was, is um, because Spider-Man never became a crime fighter, um, John Jameson, his, his astronaut son, he actually dies in that mission that in the mainstream continuity, Spider-Man saved his life. And because Spider-Man becomes such a big, vainglorious thing, um, it just rankles Jameson to a point where he actually puts together um, a supervillain team to try to take Spider-Man out. And you don't know any of this until the end of the story where it has a very Scooby-Doo ending where 
uh, Spider-Man unmasks the big bad only to discover that it's J. Jonah Jameson. And that it's interesting in that aspect, but that's also the reason that it kind of bumped down the list for me because that played a lot better when I was a kid than it did rereading it. Now I reread it and I'm like, wow, that's a total Scooby-Doo ending. And it's kind of <laughs> silly, but it was, it's still fun. And I really like uh, Pat Broderick's take on, uh, on Spider-Man in that book. Yeah, see, that's, that's where I'm going to vary from you a little bit. Like, you know, I love Pat Broderick's art. I always have. Uh, and I, and there's nothing wrong with the art. I just feel it's like, it's not suited for this story. It just doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't look right to me. It's a little, at points, it's a little too cartoony. I think he may have been trying to, to do a little Steve Ditko in there and come up yeah. a, little, a little short, as far as I'm concerned. There's parts of it where it's beautiful, but it just, it's it's less criticizing the artwork and more criticizing the combination of the artwork on this story. I love Peter's 70s movie star hair. He's got like big, like like a big perm or something. It's yeah. just, it's so ridiculous, but it's it fits somehow with the story. With this guy being, you know, this this egotistical movie star, it just somehow it, it really fits, even though it looks really kind of kind of crazy and ridiculous. But that's my number five. Okay, moving to number four, I have uh, what if number twenty six. What if Captain America had been elected president? And that's one of these ones where I kind of feel like, because uh, if, if you remember, there was the in the Burn Stern run, there was the thing where they had asked him to run for president. And this is one that's kind yes. of going against what I had said, because this wasn't that long ago when they did the what if issue. Uh, but I just remember enjoying where it went. Eventually, you know, he still came into conflict with the Red Skull and they ended up in a battle where they both kind of died together in the White House. Uh, and I just thought it was very cool. And, and you know, there was it, it had uh, it had a lot going to it as far as I going for it as far as I was concerned. About 100 years ago, when uh, when Two True Freaks was just getting off the ground uh, one of the very earliest crossover things we ever did with uh, with other podcasts. There was this big podcasting event, and I don't even remember what the hell the occasion was. Now I don't I don't know why uh, we chose these books, but Chris Honeywell and I um, covered two what if style books. One of them was um, an Action Comics annual where Superman. Uh, is elected president and then the other one was this what if number 26 what if captain america had been elected president and uh yeah i have i have fond memories of this one i enjoyed this one quite a bit wouldn't make my top five list but i i do like this one quite a bit and the ending of it always stuck with me and i i, I always liked the the ending although it was sad i mean typically what if stories did have sad endings uh, but i also like the part that right after immediately after he's elected um, he's uh, there's an assassination attempt on him, and I always like the sequence where he throws his mask back on and then goes into action as Captain America leaving his Secret Service people behind. <laughs> they can't catch up to him. That always stuck with me. That that sequence, I always thought that was really cool. Yes, very cool. 
All right, my number four is What If number 34. This is the infamous all-comedy issue. I friggin' love this one. It still cracks me up to this day. Um, there, there are just some quintessential uh, you know, moments in, in that particular issue that, that I always think back on uh, that I just find hysterical. The, the whole one of, of uh, What If... Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name now. Hang on, I'm going to look it up real quick here. It's what if it's it's the guy that eventually became Adam Warlock, but um, what do they call him? Him. Him. What if him had married her? And it's just a family photo, and it's it's there's a, a little arrow pointing to everybody in the picture, and it shows him, and he's standing there, he's smoking a pipe, and he's got his golf clubs. It says him, and then she's rela- uh, lounging on a lounge chair, and it says her. And then there's two gold, you know, both characters are golden colored, so their kids are golden colored, and it says them, and then there's a dog, and it says Bartholomew. I don't know <laughs> what the hell's so funny about that, but every time I see it, it just cracks me up. Um, but there's some really good gags in here. I love the one, what if uh, Daredevil was deaf instead of blind, and he's just beating the shit. Uh, it's, a fr- it's Frank Miller. And he's beating the shit out of these bad guys, and they're all saying, uh, I give up, I surrender. And he's going, stop mumbling, speak up, talk. And he's just <laughs> baffling this guy. It's great. I, I mean, the whole issue is just these really corny gags, but it, it's just so much fun. Uh, and then my favorite one of all is the very last one in the book. Um, what if, and then if is crossed out, and it says will. What will happen when Stan Lee reads this issue and it's Stan with the issue crumbled up in his fist and looking really pissed off. And he goes, you're all fired. Enough said, (laughs) (laughs) but it's just, it's a classic. I I absolutely love this issue. What if uh, Iron Man had an eating problem instead of a drinking problem? (laughs) He's showing the fat armor. I remember that. Yep. Yep. So just a great issue. So number three on my (laughs) list is, Actually, what if number three, what if the Avengers had never been, Uh, which is kind of actually a misnomer because uh, it goes back to, I guess, issue number three of the Avengers uh, when the Hulk and the Submariner were teaming up against the Avengers and the basically everybody just decides to quit and not fight fight them and Iron Man's left alone and then he... uh, brings back actually Hank Pym and the Wasp and Rick Jones bitch and they he armors them to fight against the Hulk and Submariner ultimately ending in a very sad ending where Tony Stark is killed in the battle uh, but I the thing that really stood out to me uh, that I just remember to this day is the Gil Kane art. He did the cover, he did the interior art, yeah. and I just remember it being just really beautiful throughout. I thought the story was really good. Uh, it was written by uh, Jim Shooter, uh, but but Kane was really what stood out to me as inked by Klaus Janssen. So this this was this has long been a favorite of mine. I've. Uh... I'm pretty sure I own this issue. I've never read it. I'm flipping through it right now, and holy cow, man, this is, I've got to read this. It's beautiful. Um, the pedigree on this is amazing. I mean, you got Jim Shooter as the writer. I love Jim Shooter as a writer. Gil Kane pencils and Klaus Jansen inks. Yeah, I can't believe I've never read this. It, it looks awesome. I mean, the art's just beautiful. So, now so I know yeah, I ruined the ending for you. Place. 
<laughs> I've oh, spoiled right. it I mean, for I'd, you. I'd already flipped to it before you said that anyway. And I mean, like like you say, I mean, most of these, it, it's it's a very rare what if that had a happy ending. Most of them did have downer endings to them, you know. So I think that was kind of the charm of them as as well. But it's funny that I, I kind of have the opposite reaction to you. You said the ones that had the happier endings tend to be forgettable to you. Those are the ones I tend to remember most because most of them didn't have a happy ending. Yeah, well, true. Uh, but, you know, I I think this is one which, which is kind of cool in its own way because it's kind of self-contained, even though the ramifications of what would happen from this point forward are huge because now you'd be dealing with a world without Tony Stark where, you know, in the Marvel Comics universe, that's not something we've ever contemplated or re- never realistically contemplated, uh, Avengers, cr- the crossing aside. Um, but it's also, you know, it all kind of ends at, you know, before they... Uh, recover Captain America in issue number four. So, you know, it's, it's pretty, like I said, self-contained. Right. Which is, you know, not what I just sat here pontificating a couple of minutes ago about what we needed uh, in these stories, because I wanted them to be more wide ranging and, and dramatic, but just the same. I love this issue. (laughs) Well, my number three uh, it's funny, this is actually from the second series, What If Volume 2, and you talk about forgettable. I, you know, I read much more of the second series because for a time I was picking it up regularly as it came out. I, you know, I had number one fever when, when it came out, and then so I bought it for, I don't know, probably at least the first year, maybe year and a half. Um, but most of the stories were very pedestrian and rather forgettable. But there's there's one that has always stood out to me, and that's uh, what if volume two, number four? What if the alien costume had possessed Spider-Man? Um, that one was uh, October 1989. It was written by. Um, oh, that's funny. I've got Danny, but I didn't bother to put a last name here. Hang on. Let me look it up real quick. Danny, oh, Fingeroth, Danny Fingeroth. Um, Art on this one's by uh, Mark Bagley, and I always thought that this was one of the first things he ever did, but then looking at his timeline, no, he was. this was a couple years into his career, but uh, Mark Bagley and then Inks by Keith Williams. And uh, the art is fantastic in this, but the story's really good too because uh, the, the divergence point in this one is that when Spider-Man goes to Reed Richards to uh, help him, you know, to analyze the costume and then uh, Richards determines it's alive and he actually uses like a sonic cannon or something to get the costume off of him. In this reality, it doesn't work. It's already bonded to Spider-Man and he can't get it off. And so the symbiote takes him over and eventually it burns him out and releases him. And when it releases him, Peter Parker has gone from you know, whatever age he was supposed to be, like early 20s or whatever. And now he's a, like a withered old man and he dies shortly thereafter. And it bonds with other uh, heroes. It ends up bonding with the Hulk and actually burns him out. But when it burns him out and releases him... Uh, it releases uh, Bruce Banner. So it effectively it cures him from being the Hulk. And then it bonds with Thor. And I know that today a venomized uh, 
character is kind of pedestrian because it's been done a lot. I, I've seen all kinds of different artwork and stuff of venomized versions of different characters. But back during this time, that was that was a pretty unique thing. A venomized Thor, as drawn by Mark Bagley, was pretty badass. He looked really cool. And so here was Venom with essentially Venom with the power of Thor. And uh, and it was it was some good stuff, it was some scary shit. And but it was a really, really good issue. And that one was, was always Venom stuck. was Venom able to lift a hammer. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, well, I, realistically, I, he shouldn't be because you wouldn't think. think Venom would be worthy. Well, but then again, he's bonded to Thor. Thor and Thor's were, and let me let me double check. I mean, I'm gonna have to flip back through the issue real quick. Does he continue to wield the hammer even after he is? Yes, yeah, because the very first panel after it bonds with him, he is holding that. Yeah, he's got the hammer with him. So yeah, he is con- continuing to to wield the hammer. Yeah, you raise an interesting point. Um, I mean, my no prize, and probably what they were thinking at the time would be, well, it is Thor's body. But you raise an interesting point. If it's no longer Thor's personality or, or mind, you know, in total control of that body, would that then futz the whole enchantment? And, and, and I don't know. I, you know, in this story, no, it doesn't. But yeah, that is an interesting idea. So that that opens the door to if you were able to mentally enthrall Thor or mentally like, you know, do the old mind swapping trope, you know, if you could put, you know, uh, I don't know anybody's, you know, Loki's, for example, Loki's brain in Thor's body. Could Loki then wield the hammer of Thor? I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I would think no, but you know, what do I know? I'm not, yeah. I'm not Norse, <laughs> nor am I enchanted. Right. <laughs> What's your number two? So number two is going to be the issue that I'm going to cover. So I'm just going to hit it briefly. It's uh, what if the what if the uh, excuse me, what if the invaders had stayed together after World War Two? And we'll talk about that more after we finish the top five list. Okay. All right. My number two. This is the one that uh, again when when this idea got proposed. This is the first book that came to my mind. This is what I had always thought was my favorite issue of What If. It's it's the issue that anytime What If comes up as a subject, it's the one that I automatically think of every time. So I thought, well, surely this is my number one. But rereading uh, the books that I chose for my top five list, I, I actually found I had to bump it down just slightly. But uh, it, it's it's a very close contender with what I went with for number one. But anyway, it is What If number 30. Now, it's cover build. It's funny because often the cover, what if title is very different from what's in the issues, and this is another case of that. So it's cover build as what if Spider-Man's clone had lived, uh, but it's actually entitled what if Spider-Man's clone had survived. Uh, you got to remember, this was decades before the whole clone saga and where Spider-Man clone became such a dirty word and such a hated concept and all that sort of thing. This was still, uh, you know, a novel new idea at this time. You know, there had been the short little original clone saga uh, that played out over the course of just a couple of issues, and then that was it. So this is picking up that idea. 
Um, this is the December 1981 issue. It was written by Bill Flanagan, which is a name I, I was not familiar with. Um, and I looked him up. He only ever did two comic stories ever, and apparently now he's some sort of radio talk show host or something. Uh, anyway, art by Rich Buckler and Jim Mooney and Pablo Marcus all together. And uh, it makes for a very interesting combination because I like all those guys. And uh, it, it's kind of a strange, uh, strange soup with the, with the three of them kind of melded together. I, I like it. I dig it. Um, but it's interesting. But anyway, um, this, the story is really cool because... Uh, in this one, the divergence point is that the clone doesn't die like he does in the original story. And uh, Peter is actually knocked out. The the actual real Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man is knocked out and the clone puts him in stasis. And then the clone, not realizing that it is a clone, tries to resume its normal life and realizes at some point that he's got a big old gap in his memory, like a couple year gap in his memory. And eventually comes to the realization that he is the clone. And then he, he goes back and he frees the other Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man from stasis. And, you know, there's a whole series of events and everything. But what I always liked about this one, what always stuck with me with this story was that it was one of the rare what ifs with a happy ending. Because at the end of it, they decide to basically share the identity of Spider-Man and Peter Parker. So they're going to be two guys living one life. So they actually, they jokingly at the end of the story, they're going to trade off days so that now Peter will actually be able to attend school and go on dates and have a normal life while Spider-Man can continue to crime fight at the same time because now he's, there's two of him. And, Again, it's one of those ones where it probably played a lot better as a kid, you know, because then when you get to be an adult, you start overthinking these things and it doesn't really work. I don't think you overthink it. I just think you think about it and you say, well, what what happens when you get a girlfriend? (laughs) Are you going to take turns and not let her know there's two of you? (laughs) How does that work? You know, there's, there's, there's logic that just, you know, just does not fall into place. And I don't think that's overthinking. You're, it. I you're just think it's right. thinking. <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. And, and I, I, I denied myself that path because I have such fond memories of this. I didn't want it to all fall apart for me. So I just tried not to think too much about it, but yeah, you're right. That was the first thing that occurred to me was, uh, you know, the whole girlfriend thing. So it's like, are you really, you're both going to share. It's going to be two guys with this one. You know, that's kind of weird. So yeah, but Again, you know, I, now, I liked now if it you as shared, kid, so if you shared the Spider-Man identity, and then each had your own personal kind of identity that you worked with, that works, right? Yeah, you, know, you create your own personal civilian life. But then, then it, what what happens when Spider-Man number one is there with some sort of, you know, insurmountable odds against him, and Spider-Man number two is going to say, "That's nah, my day off, sorry." Yeah, I thought of that, too. Yeah. Spider-Man gets in a real bind. Is the other Spider-Man going to come help him out or or, sooner or later? They're going to team team up sooner or later. Yep. But I I still dug it, though. I I still think it, you know, it's a fun issue. Yeah, no, it it is fun. And like you say, it's one that you just got to kind of roll with it and not give it really much thought at all. And I do. I dig the cover on it. 
Yeah. It's uh, Bob Layton. Yeah, it's a pretty cool Layton cover. And the interior art by Buckler, you know, it's Buckler. So there's a couple of points where his drawings of Peter don't really jazz me, but, but the action sequences all look great. He's got a couple really nice, I don't know if in this case if you'd call them swipes or homages, but he's got a couple really nice ones in there where, uh, you know, it's, it's some nice callbacks to Spider-Man poses uh, by other artists. There's, there's a very um, Ditko one, uh, you know, it's a Spider-Man on the wall. That's a, a very classic uh, Ditko pose that I liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overall pretty good, pretty fun issue. I think that's what it comes down to. Yep. All right, so I guess my number one is what if Spider-Man yep. joined the Fantastic Four, which is number one. Number one, yeah. And that was, you know, that came out when I, you know, what, what, what's the release date on that? I got to take a look on that because I was so into it. February of 1977. So I would have been 14 years old and... Just you know, knee deep in 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 Marvel continuity, and just loving every second of it, and the whole concept of what if, uh, really just you know, I read this one over and over again. I just got such a big kick out of it, and it did have the kind of a sad ending, but not totally sad. You know, they didn't die, but ultimately because Spider-Man was a member of the Fantastic Five, uh, Sue felt marginalized, which is so true to. Marvel continuity that eventually she just kind of left to be with Namor. Um, and, uh, you know, Reed was tortured by that and they did eventually do a sequel issue to it. Uh, I think it was in the original series. I'm trying to remember, but they did do a sequel story to it later on. What was that one? I'm trying to remember when, when they did that one. Uh, Uh, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm lost on it. I should have looked it up. Actually, let me look because I got the Wikipedia page open. I bet you it makes reference to it. While you're looking that up, uh, I'll just get my history on this. Uh, I love this issue as well. And, uh, and it actually probably should have made my top five in all honesty, but, uh, I was really lucky, as I've said many, 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 many times on this show, um, you know, as a kid, both my mom and uh, some of my uncles worked in a paper mill in the town where we lived. And they used to bring me boxes uh, of coverless comics when I was a kid. And uh, I actually had a coverless what if number one. And uh, as you say, I, I read that book till I just I mean, I just wore it out. I really, really liked that one. And uh, probably the thing that always tickled me the most was it has probably the longest introduction by the watcher because it has to kind of set up the series. What is it all going to be about? So it's talking about alternate realities and, you know, variances in the timeline and that sort of thing. And there's actually a reference and kind of sort of half-ass cameo by Superman in there because there's a oh, reference yeah, yeah. to uh, Superman versus the amazing Spider-Man. And they, all they show of Superman is like the end of his blue sleeve and his fist punching Spider-Man, but it's still cool that I mean Superman showed up in a Marvel comic. That's that's actually really neat. Yeah, definitely. That is one of the one of the 
things that just stood out to me at the time. Um, the sequel was actually What If Number 21, and it's What If the Invisible Girl of Fantastic Four Married the Submariner. Uh, and the story is by, oh, Bill, okay. by Bill Mantlow and the art by Gene Colan. How wrong could you go? Uh, it basically, right. if I remember, it's been a while since I've read this, but basically Reed becomes obsessed with this whole situation. He thinks that, that she's been, you know, hypnotized, brainwashed, whatever. Uh, so he, he goes in on a vendetta against, uh, the Submariner. And then ultimately it ends with her having the Submariner's baby and saying, no, 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 this is where I want to be. And Reed has to accept it. I wonder which, I mean, I'd have to sit down and really pour over the, the different issues, but I was trying to think of what character had the most what-if stories. Probably Spider-Man. It's probably Spider-Man, but I'm thinking Namor might be a close second, because it seemed like there was an awful lot of Namor what-ifs, too. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it just seemed that way to me when I was a kid, that there was an awful lot of them with Namor. <laughs> I, don't think he had, I don't think he had that many... I think we've hit on a lot of the ones that he's in, though, already, uh, just by chance. But I, I don't seem to remember him being in, you know, an, an inordinate number of them. I'd have to sit down. I, I might do that at some point. Sit down and, and make like a score sheet of like, you know, what what characters, uh, you know, got how many of the original. You know, I'm talking just the original 47 issue series. You know what. What's the the countdown? You know the the breakdown of appearances. Who got the most? I'm I'm thinking off the top of my head. It's probably Spider-Man, just by the fact of my list that four out of five of them are Spider-Man. So, um, and, and and I've added a, my, uh, I've added a fifth to that. So that's five out of ten. <laughs> uh, all right. So are we ready for my number one? Sure. Well. How do, how do well, you want actually, to do this? We're going to cover your book first, though, right? Uh, well, that's what I was just going to ask you. Do you want to? I have the earlier book, so do you want to cover it first? Do you want to keep yours under wraps, uh, or do you want to yeah. say yours and do whatever? Okay, so then. No, go ahead. All right, cover my yours. my issue, as I said, is what if number four? What if the invaders had stayed together after World War Two? Uh, and it's got a, I think, a beautiful color, cover by Gene Colan with. The Invaders, which at this in this picture consist of uh, Captain America, Submariner, Human Torch, the Wizard, and Miss America, are running towards the Reader, uh, and you know Captain America saying, "Come on, heroes! America needs us now more than ever." The interior story uh, is written by Roy Thomas, who you know was the Invaders' creator and a uh, devotee of Golden Age comics. Uh, Marvel and both Marvel and DC. Uh, it's penciled by Frank Robbins, inked by Frank Springer, colored by George Bell, lettered by George Rose, Joe Rosen, and John Costanza. I'm sure that you looked at this and said, "Ooh, Frank Robbins, yay!" Uh, but before I even get into the story <laughs> itself, well, I'm going real quick. I, I just I want to address two things real quick. I, I don't know if you just misspoke or what, and I'm sorry. I don't mean to to uh, contradict you. Uh, but you you had said Gene Colan on the cover. Uh, I meant uh, Gil Kane. I meant Gil Kane. Gil Kane. Okay. Yeah. I, I was confusing um, myself with Gene Colan that I just mentioned him in that sequel to the issue number one. So thanks for the. I correction. got really excited seeing. <laughs> I got really excited seeing this cover because I don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, I've got this uh, this really big. I'm not sure the actual dimensions of it, but it's really big. It's like poster sized. Um, 
wood framed wall art uh, lenticular picture that I got from, I don't know, it's like Hobby Lobby or something several years back. And it's uh, 3D lenticular and it's Captain America like running at you. And it's this image. They, they just stole it from this cover and they put it in this 3D lenticular image. with And then the background of it is just different. Um, I think it's covers or something. Of, I'm not in the room where it is at the moment, but I think it's, it's covers or different images of, of Cap from you know different comics and everything. But the main image is this particular Cap from this cover. And I, I just love it. It's a great piece of art. You're not going to say that again in this review, are you? Well, you know, that's the funny thing is as soon as I open this book, which I have read before, and I really like this issue, but as soon as I opened it and I saw it was Frank Springer, my first thought honestly was that son of a bitch, because I thought you did it on purpose thinking that I would. Well, yeah, here's the funny thing. I'm not a Frank Robbins art fan, nor Frank Springer. I really like this issue art wise. So, meh. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> See, I look at this one art-wise, and, and we're getting into review before I give a synopsis, but that's fine. Uh, well, one of the reasons that I picked this one, or one of the reasons that this jumps out at me, is because we did that uh, Captain America Patriot series uh, that plays yes. on this one a lot. And this one does actually take place. Eventually, it is established that this is in Marvel continuity. Uh because it's just such a cool concept. And I think, you know, that's part of what, what really intrigued me by it is just the conceptual thing. Frank Robbins is actually a co-writer on this along with Roy Thomas, I believe. I don't think he just uh, drew it because they're, they're credited in the book as co-conjurers of cosmic cacophony. So I, I'm thinking he either plotted it or he, uh, you know, he sat down and wrote and drew and, you know, plotted it out with Roy Thomas. Uh, and ultimately, when I look at this, I've always said Frank Robbins' art is suited to the invaders because it almost has a golden age feel to it. Uh, yeah. And so, so, so it's it's fitting for that reason. But also, I look at this story and I think if Springer had done a little bit of a better job with the facial inking, I think I think the artwork would actually be pretty high quality here uh i, I think you know you, you needed somebody who was going to going to try and embellish it a little bit and just make it make the faces look a little better and and i think it would have been i think it would have been pretty good honestly i don't think frank robbins art is bad i think you know what he drew uh in my impression is slightly rough pencils and he needed a strong inker with him and i feel like this is just becoming a repeated story that i'm giving over and over again because the more we look at these books and the more we pay attention to it, the more my criticism of art is being laid directly on the feet of the inker and less on the penciler. And a lot of that is due to the fact that when we have, you know, when we, when we dived further into things and we've been able to find pencil work online of pages that we didn't think looked that good, a lot of times the pencil work looked outstanding. And then we, you know, we see the inked version and say, okay, you know, that's not so great. Uh, so I, I'm really, I, I really try to look at this, and I and I look at, you know, take away the color, take away the dark ink, pen, you know, and, and in my mind turn it into a penciled page, and I think this looks really good as far as that goes. I don't like some of the inking on it, but I do like the artwork. But then again, I've always had a a greater appreciation for Frank Robbins than you. Uh, and I think we could debate that until, you know, from now to eternity. And we probably never will 
uh, agree totally on it. All that said, let's let me just give you the uh, I'm going to give you the Marvel Wiki uh, synopsis only because I think it's better than what I was going to say otherwise. The Watcher reveals the last days of World War II from the perspective of the invaders. As Captain America and Bucky disappear over the Atlantic, Torch and Toro fly into Berlin on April 30th, 1945, in an attempt to capture Hitler before he can commit suicide. When Hitler reaches for a button upon seeing them, the Human Torch believes it to be the trigger for a bomb that would destroy all of Berlin and feels forced to stop him by burning him to death. Meanwhile, Namor fights the Japanese in the Pacific, and Spitfire and Union Jack protect Churchill back in London. The remaining invaders later meet up, learning of Cap and Bucky's deaths, and Namor and the Torches are recalled to the States to meet with President Truman, while Spitfire and Union Jack remain in Britain. Truman explains that the invaders must live on until the war in the Pacific is over. He adds to their ranks the former Liberty Legion members, Miss America and Wizard, as well as a new Captain America and Bucky, formerly the Spirit of 76, and Fred Davis, bat boy for the New York Yankees, who once acted as a decoy for Bucky. The new invaders continue to fight in the Pacific until Japan's surrender, at which point they receive a new presidential request to turn their attentions to fighting crime at home under the name of the All Winners Squad. They operate as such for the remainder of 1945 into 1946. One day in 1946, the Human Torch decides to visit Phineas Horton's home in Boston to attempt to reconcile with his, in quotations, father, taking Toro with him. When they arrive, they find Horton has made a second android, Adam II, who has gone mad and imprisoned his creator and fashioned several other robotic servants, including duplicates of humans he intends to replace. With the arriving help of another former Liberty Legionnaire patriot, the Torches escape from Adam II's trap and learn from Horton that Adam II intends to replace a politician campaigning in Boston. The other all-winners assemble and spread out to find the mark, and it's Captain America and Bucky that find Adam II along with a duplicate of young Senator Jack Kennedy. While Cap desperately sends a flare out to recall his teammates, one of the enemy androids grabs him and crushes his ribs. The All-Winners squad converges to fight Adam II, who attempt to flee when Captain America miraculously returns. However, he loses control of his getaway car and crashes, seemingly destroyed in the resulting explosion. When the All-Winners are alone, Captain America unmasks to reveal he's actually the Patriot, and that he found the dying second Cap, who revealed his, second, his secret with his last breath. Jeffrey Mace vows to keep the legend of Captain America alive in honor of both the men that came before him. I just loved this story. I just thought this was great. Uh, it, it's got everything that I look for, except for quality inking. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, 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 like I said, I, I like the, I like the Robin's art. I don't like the inking so much. The story, though, what what Roy Thomas put together here, and again, whether or not he plotted it alone or he plotted it with Robin's, it's just a great story, and that's why they put it into the Marvel real universe. And, uh, you know, we got to, to see that, that miniseries, which we just thought was great as well, which played upon the information here and built upon it. Uh, you know, I, I, I always, from when I started collecting comics, I was always a fan of the continuity. I always found Golden Age books a little bit difficult to, you know, to, to get into, uh, but I liked to know more about the history. So to me, the invaders 
you know, playing with the history and giving us some stuff and Roy Thomas being a devotee of that history and, you know, trying to, to weave it into real stories and stuff that went on. Uh, it, it really worked for me. It gave me that golden age knowledge without having to, to go into those books, which I often found to be just uninviting. Uh, you know, and then, then you know, just the, the, the pathos in the story, the, you know, the ending with the Captain America, the second Captain America getting killed, the Patriot replacing him, you know, with tears in his eyes. It just, it, it really, you know, hit me totally. And, and still to this day, I just think it's a really, really great story. I, I completely agree with you. I really like this one a lot. Um I have since you know since I first discovered it, and I think I only discovered it uh, through reading something that referenced the history. It was probably when I read the, about the the fifth the cap of the 1950s for the first time, um, and then you know trying to backtrack the history of that whole thing and you know the history of that character and realizing that there had been multiple Captain Americas over the years, uh, especially in the period between when Steve went missing um, right at the end of World War II and then when he would return with the Avengers and Avengers number four that, uh, you know, that there had been all these retcons and there had been, you know, a lot of explanations given about, uh, you know, his other adventures and things like that. And I, I just, I became fascinated with this. And I agree with you. I think that's that's the real beauty of Roy Thomas is that because he is such a student of the Golden Age and he, he's you know such a devotee of that material, he has taken it and he's made it more palatable for guys like you and I that have an interest in the characters and events of those old Golden Age books but can't actually stomach reading the books themselves. Um, I've never been a big fan of, of the actual Golden Age material. I try to read it, and it's just between really lousy art a lot of times and then just simplistic or outright, you know, have to say it, outright just stupid stories. I just can't I can't get into it. Um, but he takes that stuff and, and a lot of times makes it much more interesting and much more palatable um, and he would often give motivations for things. And, you know, sometimes even the, the weirdest uh, little little story hiccups and everything, he, he would try to uh, give some sort of rational explanation for. And often they worked, and then sometimes they didn't. I couldn't help but chuckle about, um, on page three of this story, he tries his damnedest to explain why when Cap was found by the Avengers, he was wearing just a standard army uniform uh, with his shield uh, on his chest underneath the shirt. And Roy, I mean, he gives it, a, you know, an A for effort here with trying to explain how Cap wound up in civvies, but it, it totally doesn't work. It totally doesn't work, but you know, good, good on him for at least trying, you know, but it's one of those things that honestly, you know, sometimes you just got to let that stuff go because sometimes guys like him and like John Byrne, for example, they'll, they'll try to fix 
continuity things that never really bothered me. Um, you know, Byrne tried to do the same thing with, you know, why was that, why did that guy that Spider-Man let go, why did he ever wind up in the Parker home as a burglar anyway? And you know what? That never bothered me. I, I never fretted about that. And I never really fretted about how did Cap wind up in civvies, you know, in a block of ice. It's just, you know, some things you just kind of roll with. So, you know, Good on him for trying, but it, it, it didn't. He didn't need to do it, and it didn't work. But other than that, yeah, I really like this one, and I surprised myself on how much I really dig the art in this issue because it's totally not my style. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm often gonna very steal free. you. I'm going to steal you to page four of the story, or actually, it's page six of the story. I think the artwork on that page is exemplary. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I really like that a lot. It works, and and I, I suspect a lot of the reason it works is, as you said, he he's taking golden age material, and his particular art style is faithful to that period, but it also is more dynamic, and it's more um, it, it tells a better story than a lot of those old golden age artists could do at the time it flows so it has sort of a a modern comics sensibility with a golden age flair if that makes sense and mm-hmm. it really works and it's why i it's why i can like it in something like this but then i see like robin's run on the actual modern day cap that whole that whole run that he did at the tail end of like the Steve Englehart run just didn't work for me um, because it, it was out of its era, if you know what I mean. Plus, I found that there wasn't near as much of that weird body distortion thing in this that he he did in that cap or that cap run, and he did the same thing with uh, with the Human Fly. His characters were often just freakishly distorted and they were making all kinds of weird poses and weird i mean just all kinds of just things you you know anatomically your body just doesn't bend that way and he it's toned way back in this there's a little bit of it but it's really not bad the the really the only one in the whole book that really bothered me at all was uh page 36 the very first shot we get of the patriot running into the scene um (laughs) Your body yeah. could only yeah, he do that if you've been his hit right by leg. a truck. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's all messed up. But other than that, I I, I like it. I, I really do enjoy the art in this. Um, the, the, the description I heard uh, for for Frank Robbins' art, you know, with what you're talking about is, uh, and this is giving it the benefit of the doubt. But the description I heard is everybody looks like they're weightless and floating. Yes. Yeah. But somehow, I don't know. Somehow, it really works for this. I, I dig. I did dig the 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 style of the art. I agree with you though about the inks. Though I, I think the evidence for that is on that final splash page. It's a really good final splash page. But the inks just, yeah, it, it doesn't. Yeah, you it, put it a top. You put something. a top anchor on that page, and it, it'd be poster worthy. Yeah. 
I did like this though. It's funny that you know here we're covering what if, and you you, you pick the one issue that's actually a, a, a what happened when instead of a what if story. But I've often wondered about the history of this story. I mean, was it embraced as continuity right out of the gate, or was it no, a situation I don't think so. like? Uh, no. Okay. So, so it's I, something I, I, I that they adopt I, later on. Well, what is I, what is? I'm just trying to see what does the watcher say at the end. Uh, two Captain Americas had perished this past twelve months. Uh, you know what? I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember them embracing it from the start that way. I just remember it, you know, being an issue and they moved on. Uh, I, I think it wasn't until, you know, until we got to later things and possibly that Patriot series that we covered uh, that they definitively said it was part of Marvel continuity. Uh, but there was certainly no reason it couldn't be right from the start. It, it you know, this, this is Roy Thomas's thing. You know, he, he, I think, you know, he, he serves as a precursor for the guys who, who were students of the continuity and tried to, to fix it. So I, I don't see Byrne quite as much as a student of continuity as a student of logic. I think when he looked at yes. things that just didn't have logic to them, he tried to fix them. Whereas the guys who, who tried to fix continuity uh, are, uh, in, at least in Marvel, are Busiak and Wade. Those are the two guys who, who you know, were students of the continuity, and when there was something that didn't make sense in that continuity, he'd try and fix it, or they would try and fix it. Byrne, it was, if there was something that didn't make sense in a particular story, he tried to fix it. I, my but I think Roy Thomas is the precursor of that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. My my only other theory on this um, would be that this was like a like uh, like an inventory store, like a holdover from Invaders. But I looked that up, and Invaders was only halfway into its run, so it was actually still in production when this came out. So that theory doesn't hold either. So it's interesting because something very similar happened at DC. Uh, a couple of decades later, um, James Robinson wrote a series called The Golden Age that was about, you know, the Golden Age, World War II here, you know, the Justice Society and all that. And that was written as an Elseworlds tale. But eventually, because it was so good and it was so impactful on that era, um, was eventually adopted into continuity, um, just like this one, apparently. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, oh, definitely. But yeah, like, like I say, I'm just, I'm curious. You know, was was this initially, as it's built, a what if story that they eventually adopted, or was it just kind of in, you know, for lack of a better term, was it in the wrong book because it actually is continuity, but this is just the book they chose to publish it in. I, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I think, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think they just eventually realized that this fit, and they decided to build on it in the way that they did uh but i don't i don't i don't think it was ever intended you know when it was originally published to have that effect uh right. i one of the things about this story that i love is that it established that that the human torch killed hitler i just i always got a kick out of that yes i, I was just reading something not long ago that referenced that i want to say was it West Coast Avengers? I know I've read something before that that referenced that um, that e either the torch was bragging about it, or somebody 
connected with the torch, like maybe Toro or somebody mentioned it to somebody else, like, hey, don't talk to him like that. He he actually killed Hitler or something. I don't know. It's just tickling my brain, but I know I've read something like that not long ago, and I thought that was really cool that, that somebody remembered that, that in Marvel continuity, it was the torch that took out Hitler. That, that's really cool. Yeah, I think uh, I'm just losing my train of thought. Uh, I, I liked the at, you know as he, in his dying breath he's he's like don't don't let them take credit for this tell them I committed suicide right so it, you know it even fits with real continuity and real right. history which I, again I just think it's very very cool touch by Thomas well that so. page of Hitler dying too and saying that to the guy is just because he's just a, a pile of like mush it's it's really disturbing. Well, just uh, another thought about the Frank Robbins art, and it's funny because we have pictures underwater here with the Submariner, and I think that they're, they're fine. But to me, Frank Robbins, everybody looks like they're just, you know, living in a heat wave with high humidity. So he's perfect for drawing Human Torch stuff. It's funny. I just noticed that on that page, page nine. The first panel of it's Namor funny underwater, that, that, uh, his wings are beating like crazy, and he's underwater. That's so weird. Well, he would use that to propel himself underwater as well, I would think. Yeah, I guess. And that, yeah. That's, a, that's a nice little touch, I think. Uh, I, I just think it's funny we're talking about Hitler dying, and you said page nine. <laughs> <laughs> nine! <laughs> yeah, okay, so I'm getting stupid now, but... uh you know, I, I again, I just, I just thought this was awesome, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna just jump in and rate it now. I'm gonna say, story, it's an A plus. Uh, cover, it's a very solid A, almost an A plus. And interior art, I, I dig the interior art. Like I said, I, I got to take some, some points off because I think the inking is not as good as it could be. Uh, but I'm gonna give it, I'm gonna give it a solid B. And say if you put a, a better inker on this, it could be a, a higher grade. I'm going to match you almost uh, beat for beat here. I, I love this cover. I think it's uh, it's an iconic cover. I think it's beautiful. Uh, I'm going to go an A on the cover as well. I think it's gorgeous. Uh, poster worthy, T-shirt worthy, all of that. Uh, the story, yeah, it's an A. I, I really enjoy this story a lot, uh, possibly even an A+, because it, it's just, it, you know, like you say, it, it took this concept and did it so well that it was uh, uh, later adopted into continuity and, and really well-mined for some really interesting stuff that was done later with it. So, yeah, I mean, that's a testament to how uh, how good the story is and how innovative it was. Um, art, I'm just going to go a notch low. I'm going to go a B minus on the R. I really do dig it. I, I think it's really good, but I agree with you. I think uh, it, it needed a stronger hand, uh, a more complementary hand in the inks. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I, I really do enjoy the art for this particular uh, style of tale. It, it fits and it works really well. Oh, I forgot uh, to overall, say for the book. I, what's that? I was going to say just, just keep finishing, and I'll I'll have to edit this to clean it up. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, overall, I just I, I'd still give it an A though. I, I you know I, I think it's a solid book. I, I think yeah. it's I think it's kind of a must own honestly if you're if you're going to be invested uh, you know in the history of the Marvel universe at all. I think this is kind of an important book to own. Yeah, I, I 
neglected to give my overall grade, and I'm definitely going to say uh, uh, definitely an A for me, no question. I am curious. I know we ne- we never or very seldom ever do this, but I'm just curious what fetch is being such an important book in the overall scheme of uh, of Marvel continuity and all. You would kind of yeah, you know, here's one for ninety nine cents. So it's not an expensive book. That's kind of I'm sad. kind of surprised. Should, you know what? Yeah, it is. Any, anybody yeah. who can find this in a dollar bin, buy it. It's a great yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most definitely, absolutely. All right. Well, I guess uh, that brings us to my number one in the book that I am going to cover for this show. So this book, anyway, was definitely going to be on my top five, but it kind of surprised me that it wound up at the number one spot because again, I thought that would go to. Uh, you know, what if Spider-Man's clone had survived? But in re-examining this issue, I was like, you know, I kind of like the story a notch better. And but where it really gets the nod is the art. The art is just exemplary in this issue. So my number one is what if number 46, what if Spider-Man's Uncle Ben had lived? And that might seem kind of odd because my number five was what if Spider-Man had stopped the burglar who killed his uncle? But there is an important difference in this story, as we'll get into. So this was the uh, August 1984 issue. It was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on May 15th, 1984. has a cover by Ron Friends and Bill Sienkiewicz. And it's kind of a fun one. It depicts, let me pull it up here real quick. It depicts, it's kind of a, in a a kind of funny way, it's kind of a generic Spider-Man cover in the sense that you have that classic split down the middle, half Peter Parker, half Spider-Man image, which I always really enjoy when they do that. It looks really cool. On the Peter Parker side of the image, you have Peter's supporting cast. You've got Aunt May. You've got Betty Brant. I don't even know who the hell they are. Who's the bearded guy? I don't uh, know who that's. Maybe that's the, the vulture. Vulture. That's I'm the not vulture. Sure who that's, that's, okay. And then on the other side, you've got you know the Green Goblin, Doc Octopus. Uh, it looks like maybe that's the Sandman or maybe John Jameson. I'm not sure who that's supposed to be. Bottom, you actually have uh, J. Jonah Jameson in an argument with. Uncle Ben, and I thought that was really cool. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really neat cover. I like the cover on this one a lot. So, uh, on the interiors, oh, by the way, this uh, original cover price on this was a buck. So, written by Peter Gillis, who, again, uh, he was the one that wrote uh, my number five, the what if uh, Spider-Man had stopped the burglar who killed his uncle. So, kind of revisiting uh, familiar territory, uh, but with some very notable differences. Uh, penciler is Ron Friends. Inker is Sam Della Rosa, and they make one hell of a team on this book. The pouring rain on a gloomy day, a guilt-wracked Peter Parker visits the gravesite of the loved one who died due to his failure to act as Spider-Man when he had the chance. Walking away from the headstone, he is comforted and told that death never makes any sense and that the only thing the living can do for the departed is to live. I just keep thinking of what might have been, says Peter. What should have been? So do I, Peter, says his Uncle Ben. So do I. 
And we see the two men walk away from the grave of May Parker, beloved wife and aunt. The Watcher in Shadow gives the standard introduction in Spider-Man's Uncle Ben had lived. In a remarkably Ditko-esque sequence, we learn that the turning point in this reality is that this time, instead of Ben Parker being roused from sleep by sounds of an intruder in their home, it is his wife, May, who confronts the burglar and is fatally shot. What follows is a very nice insight into the kind of uh, person in character uh, that is so important to the history and motivation of Marvel's most popular superhero, but that we never really got to know. Uncle Ben in the mainstream Marvel universe serves one purpose. He dies. Much like Bruce Wayne's parents, he exists solely to perish and provide pathos, angst, and motive for the hero. In this reality, uh, we get a very kind, understanding, patient, occasionally stern, humble, fatherly, and human Ben Parker. He's protective of his nephew, um, who he finds a bit odd, and he's consumed with guilt over the death of his wife while he slept soundly. That's my favorite part of the whole issue. He's also uh, smart enough to quickly figure out Peter's dual identity, and rather than being upset or angry or disapproving, he actually encourages Peter to continue as Spider-Man to continue trying to do right. And Peter does. He forges a career much like uh, the one in our reality. However, also much like in our reality, he also earns the ire of one J. Jonah Jameson. Eventually, Uncle Ben has enough of this and storms into the Daily Bugle and confronts J.J. And in a turn, a stunning turn of events, he convinces Spider-Man to unmask in front of Jameson. However, this has the side effect of J.J. then having dirt on Peter Parker and being able to essentially blackmail him for news stories. But eventually, Peter saves Jameson's life and that of his astronaut son, John, and at story's end, Jameson owes Spider-Man. The story concludes with Peter and his Uncle Ben shaking hands and saying they'll always get by together. And uh, I just got to say, I, I love this issue. It may not be as uh, dynamic or dramatic as some of the other issues. Um, it has a happy ending, which rarely happens you know, in, in the what if stories. So it doesn't have you know one of those twist endings or downer endings or O. Henry endings. But there's just something nice about this one that I like. P uh, Uncle Ben is just a nice, likable character in this. And I like that he's not totally just Pa Kent, which he kind of comes off at in the beginning of it. Um, but he's, he has some dimension to him. He gets angry. You know, you see that when he balls out Flash Thompson, he balls out and he, he stands toe to toe with J. Jonah Jameson. Um, but I also like the moment where Peter confesses to Uncle Ben that it's my fault. And he tells him the whole story of I could have stopped the burglar and I didn't. And because I didn't, Aunt May died expecting that Uncle Ben is going to be angry with him or, or resentful or whatever. And instead, Uncle Ben blows up for a completely different reason. He, he blows up because he himself is consumed with the guilt that – you think you feel bad, Peter. I slept through my wife being murdered. And, and I, that, that to me was like, that's what's made this my number one. What if was that moment of just 
pure humanity. That's a totally realistic and totally human reaction on Uncle Ben's part that he not only he forgives Peter, he, he doesn't even really see that as the, the tragedy in the situation. He is is, you know, he is feeling all the burden, you know, the weight of this this burden on his soul uh, for Aunt May's death. And, and I really like that. So he totally absolves Peter. Uh, so it's, it's a whole different dynamic uh, for Peter Parker and Spider-Man and, and their relationship. And, uh, you know, I, I would have really liked to have seen some sort of sequel with this or whatever. It, it occurred to me just as we started to record this, you know, to, to actually uh, read off our list that I completely forgot about one that really probably should have made my list. And that's um, I'm blanking on the issue number, but it's volume two. Uh, the what if story that eventually spawned Spider Girl, because that became a whole thing. You know that there was that one-off. Story. I want to say it's like one, issue 105, I think, of Volume Two, but that was so popular that that it became a series. I mean, a l- very long-running series, and that character is still around today. You know, in in that alternate universe of of M2. But I liked this so much. This dynamic between. Uh, Peter and Uncle Ben that I wouldn't have minded seeing this explored a little bit more. And I, I to my knowledge, they never did, which is kind of a shame. Uh, but I, I really, really dig this issue. I'm, I'm really curious what you thought about it. Hated it. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I think this is really good. And, you know, it, it, the reason it's not on my list is more based on the fact that it just didn't jump out in my memory as opposed to quality, because I think it is really high quality. I'll start with the artwork. Uh, I love the cover. It's, it is simple, kind of, as you said, it's not really a, a complex thing, but it it, it it represents in its own way, and I, I think it, uh, you know, it, it's very catchy. I think some of the images are really, really well done. Uh, moving interior, I love the artwork inside this book. I think this remedies what I've complained about with Steve Ditko's stuff for years. And that was that as Steve Ditko got older, uh, people were afraid to ink his work and give it true dynamism, dynamism, uh, and almost made it almost made it look, I think what I said was it it makes it look like it's in a coloring book or it's hollow. Uh, and that, you know, you, they, they just would be afraid to add the detail. What I felt like here is that, that was it friends. I think he, uh, he took, you know, Steve Ditko as his inspiration, and he drew images that were similar or layouts that were similar, uh, and even body types that were similar to Ditko. But then he still put his own layer of quality on top of it and embellished that. So what he did was, you know, he, he in my opinion, he aped Ditko and then tried to make it better. And I think it really, yeah. really did well here. Uh, there's a lot of images that I just think are very, very sharp. Uh, there's a little bit, I'm just looking at, at, uh, I can't tell what page it is. It's when, when he's talking to uncle Ben, there's in the middle of the page is a close up of uncle Ben's face. And that one really looks like a Sal Buscema face to me. Uh, but for the most part, I think there's, there's the disco, the disco, the Ditko, uh, quality to it but but like modernized uh yeah so so i I just think you know it really looks great i think the storytelling is terrific 
Uh, I think the characterization of the different characters themselves are really good. It touches on uh, Spider-Man number 11. There's an extensive sequence from that, uh, which is a book that we recently covered. Uh, I covered it with the uh, CGS guys not too long ago. Uh, so that that's kind of cool that that comes up again towards you know, towards the end. Um, so the so artwork, I just think it's all great. Story-wise, uh, I love, in particular, you mentioned it, the sequence where he's talking to Uncle Ben, and that Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben can't blame Peter because he's too busy blaming himself. Right. And that's just that just so hits home, and it's something that I wouldn't have thought of. Like, I I don't think I ever would have thought of going that way. So the fact that they did that just really blew me away a little bit. And it just made it so, you know, it, it just it just seemed so good. Uh, there is a little bit of the Park Kent when he's in with Jameson. And, and he starts, like, you know, saying to him, you know, basically he, he calls Spider-Man out for what he's doing. And, and he's like, yes, sir, or whatever. And... uh and, and, you know, Jameson is amazed that, that Spider-Man is listening to him like that. But it just reminds me of, of Clark and, and Pa, you know, that, you know, Clark could, could, could crush him with a, in a second. But he's almost like afraid of his afraid of his disappointment. And Peter has the right, same yeah. thing. And I, I, I just love that dynamic. Uh, you know, I don't know everybody else's relationship with their parents, but I certainly had that with my, my dad. Uh, you know, I... I, I was never as afraid physically that my dad would hit me or anything as I was afraid of his disappointment. I never wanted him to, to be embarrassed by me or disappointed by me. And I think that's the relationship they're giving here. Uh, so, you know, that really stood out to well, it's, me. It's that, it's that dynamic that works so well in, say, like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where you've got this hero that for, you know, for two movies we've watched him, you know, punch and outright murder people and you know and, and fight nazis and thuggies and all this stuff that he does but then he's cowed when his father slaps his face for blaspheming and i just i love that and that's kind of what we're seeing here where spider-man comes in you know all large and in charge and you know a, a one stern word from uncle ben just cows him right down like you say yes sir i'm sorry sir and i, I love jameson's reaction he just you know he's thinking to him and he's stunned the look on his face is just he's stunned and he's thinking to himself i can't believe this what power can this man have spider-man's never been spoken to like that before it's it's funny i just i love it yeah i'm just the only thing i would say i'm a little surprised by is that they would that they would do that in front of somebody but then it takes it a step further and they reveal his identity. So then that kind of explains why they would do that. Um, just, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed this book. I, that's, that's the bottom line on it. I, I, I don't, I did not have distinct memories of it before I reread it for this, but you know, having reread it yesterday to do this, it, it really stood out to me as, as really good. And I understand why you picked it. I'm just looking it over as, as we're talking and, uh, the sequence that's from Spider-Man number 11 with uh, Doc Ock and all, it, it really does, it doesn't feel like it's out of that book because if you put it next to it, you know, you'd see the differences, but it just gives you the, it, it takes me back to it. Uh, yes. You know, again, like I said, if you put it side by side, you'd be able to see the difference, but it definitely captures the feel 
I've I'm I've long been a huge huge fan of Ron Friends, and Ron Friends' Spider Man is my Spider Man, and I, I think it's you know pr- probably the 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 most telling thing I could say about that is uh, you know not long ago I, I had a massive calling of my Amazing Spider-Man collection. I I had a pretty solid run on that book, and I got rid of pretty much everything except the Ron Friends issues because I I just have such a soft spot for that material. I just love it. I think between his art and the stuff that was done with with Roger Stern is right. I I just, I think that is quite possibly the the strongest era there ever was for Spider-Man, but much the same way Roger Stern understood that character and how his mind works and, you know, the psychology of Spider-Man and how to, to write the stories and, and make them feel just the same way they felt in the early days with Stan Lee I think that Ron Friends was an absolute master of understanding uh, Steve Ditko's Spider-Man and paying homage and making it feel like a natural extension of that without just ripping him off. Because I don't look at this and say, oh, he's just ripping off Ditko. I look at this and I go, holy cow, he's totally nailed Ditko. And that's that's where the difference lies, because I don't see anything here that I think is a swipe or a ripoff. I just see where this guy has has mastered the same technique. And as you say, has, in my mind, improved upon it, but also injected his own style, because while it is incredibly Ditko like. I can look at Ron Friends and instantly pick out a Ron Friends uh image and that that's you know that's quite a feat but yeah, I, I i've agree. long been enamored of this guy's art i i really really like uh ron friends's art and then sam de is just a hell of an anchor too uh and he's you know he's quite the artist in his own right so i think they they meld really well and you're right there there are other art styles in here that i see beyond um, just the Ditko, because there is a certain Salbucima quality to it, and I also see a certain um, Jim Mooney quality to some of this. The, the part where Peter's friends come over, a lot of that sequence there uh, feels to me like Jim Mooney. So, you know, some really good pedigree here. You know, some some really nice uh, artistic callbacks and, and flavors and all, but. Yeah, the moodiness of the Doc Ock scenes, the underwater stuff, um, you know, some really, I mean, really nice use of uh, shading and color. Uh, the sequence where, where Peter, uh, you know, after the whole thing with, uh, with Betty, where he goes and, you know, we get the shot of, like, the city and the Empire State Building. There's that cool Spider-Man web thing in the back. I mean, just the coloring is amazing on this. So yeah, just incredibly well done. Beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, the one thing I'll, I'll say is while I feel it modernizes Dis- Ditko and it builds off Ditko, I don't know if it's better than Dis- Ditko. I'm not going to go that far. Uh, the one thing about Ditko's stuff that I think has never really been uh, recreated is he, he there there was a certain noir feeling and a, and a moodiness to his art that 
I don't know that anybody else who's tried to go for that disc Ditko uh, look has, has really been able to recreate. Uh, I think you see it on the first page. I think that that is kind of like Ditko-esque in that way. Uh, or actually the first two pages in the rain. But uh, but it, it's it's outstanding art, put it that way. Yeah. No, I, I totally get what you're saying, because that's what works for me with that Steve Ditko stuff is the, the noir, you know, the, the moodiness of it. But I, I think that uh, I think Friends is right up there with being able to capture that feel, because, again, the whole sequence where he's battling Doc Ock, um, you know, at the docks, the sequence where Spider-Man's you know, swimming under the dock and all that. And then uh, when uh, I thought this was Foswell, it says here his name's Patch. But when Patch comes well, to Patch was Foswell. confront Spider-Man. Oh, OK. When he comes to confront him in the in the alley. I mean, just the way that that is laid out, Spider-Man in shadow and all. I mean, it's just oh, it's I love it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful art. No, no question about it. I, well, I, I, <laughs> As far as uh, grades go, uh, I like the cover, but it's really it's it's the Uncle Ben confronting Jonah at the bottom is the only thing that really makes it distinctive as belonging to this particular story. Without that, it could kind of be any Spider-Man cover, if you know what I mean. So I don't know that it's really all that dynamic in that aspect. But that said, it, it's it's a good image and I really like it. Um, Bill Sienkiewicz as an inker can be, you know, that can be a real gamble sometimes, but here it works really well. Uh, whereas like later on he would come back and ink, I think it was Sal Buscema on Spectacular and a lot of that stuff looked really bad, but this looks good. I, I like this a lot. Um, I will say, I will say a solid B on the cover. Um, it's not spectacular it's not outstanding it doesn't necessarily sell the issue it's just a really good image um interior art is a straight up a plus for me um i i really can't find any fault with it at all i think it's a beautiful wonderful combination of beautiful pencils beautiful inks and just incredible coloring on this just such a great job on the coloring which uh we don't say too often on this program a lot of times i have issues with the coloring especially uh, you know, older comics, the coloring job often just looks like somebody thought it was a coloring book. Whereas this, you can see there's a lot of conscious thought that went into the coloring to create moods and to create, uh, you know, new and, and original colors beyond just, you know, the four color process. There's, there's some really dynamic stuff here. The shading's amazing. It, it's just, a, it's a beautiful book to look at. And then uh, the story, I'm going to go straight up A on the story. I really, really liked it. Uh, I, I love, uh, again, you know, this insight into a character that we never really knew anything about. We There was not enough of Uncle Ben in Amazing Fantasy 15 to really get a feel for the guy at all. He just, he was the nice old uncle that unfortunately died within, you know, just a few pages into the story. So we didn't get to know him. This lets us understand uncle ben and see him in a way we never did before as, as a real living person with a personality and uh it, it makes the tragedy of his death that hit that much harder when you realize that you know th this is all you'll ever really get of of that character and uh and i think that's why i liked it so much there you know there's a just a really human moment 
when he confesses to Peter how he really feels. I, the panel of him after he says, you know, I was asleep. I, you know, I slept through May being shot. There, there's a panel of him just hanging his head in total defeat where he just says, I'm a worthless, feeble old man. It's, it's just, oh, it kills, you know, it gets me right where I live, you know? So yeah, great, great story. Um, overall grade from the book, uh, I'm going to give it a straight up A. I'm tempted to give it an A plus cause I really think the world of it. I think it's a great book, but I'll, I'll just say an A, uh, well worth your time and money. If, uh, if you should chance to cross it, I would agree for the most part. Uh, I think I'm slightly higher on the cover than you, but I would still give it a B. I just think, I just think I like it a little more than you, but I think it still falls into the same grade. Uh, I, th- I think it's pretty sharp. I like the I like the way the blue makes everything on top of it pop. It just you know it jumps yeah. out at me. So I, I really like the cover. Uh, you know I really like it to the extent that it's a B. Uh, this the the interior art I, I agree with you. I'm giving it an A plus. I just think it's really sharp. Uh, the storytelling is great. The images are really sharp. There's a lot of them that I would you know can point to that are just so well done. Uh, and the story, I was tempted to say BB plus, but that whole sequence that you just went into in depth with, with, uh, Peter and uncle Ben, where, where uncle Ben is blaming himself, uh, really did uh, that, that pulled at the heartstrings a lot and it, it did the trick for me and it brings it up to an A and I'm going to give the book just an A. Excellent. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Oh yeah, Definitely. Uh, so just to, to kind of finish the thought, as we record this, uh, the first episode of what if has been, uh, I've seen the first episode, the first two have posted on Disney plus, uh, if I get my editing done the way I expect to, this episode will air, uh, there'll be three available to you by then because I expect this to come out that Saturday. Uh, so, uh, so far I'm enjoying what I've seen. I think it's pretty cool. And uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has enough continuity now over the last, whatever it is, 12, 13 years, I guess, uh, that they can they can handle a what if series. Yeah, I uh, I like you. I've only seen the first. There's, I, I think you're right. I think there are two out now. Uh, I've just seen the first one, but uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I wasn't really sure what to expect with this one. Um, you know, being is that it was going to be, you know, quote unquote, a cartoon and everything. But I was struck by the production values. It felt very cinematic. I really liked the animation style a lot. Uh, I thought the voice work was r- very well. And uh, I really liked the scoring. I-, I failed to note who it was that scored that first episode. But uh, but yeah, it definitely still had that, you know, cin- Marvel Cinematic Universe feel to it. Um, despite just being a, what is this, a barely over half an hour, I think. Well, I think a um, lot of it, it has to do with the fact enjoyable. that they got the, uh, the, you know, a lot of the real voices from the. Yeah. I think yeah, I like I like that. that, that, that absolutely. But yeah, I enjoyed it all. I'm curious to see what the other stories are because uh, I've tried my best to stay away from spoilers and i know that there's been a lot of images out there and everything but uh for the lo- for the most part beyond the thing where it looks like they're doing some sort of zombie cap or something beyond that i don't really know what the other stories are going to be so i'm i'm just along for the ride 
Well, obviously, the first one we know was what if Peggy Carter had gotten the super soldier serum. Uh, the second right. one I know is uh, what if the Ravagers had, uh, instead of abducting Peter Quill and, and adopting him into their group, uh, they abduct T'Challa instead, and he becomes <laughs> he becomes Star Lord. Uh, so that 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 seems to have some interesting uh, potential. And I believe the third one is going to be an Iron Man story, but I don't know what the twist is. Hmm. Okay, and they, like you no, said, there's going the to be a zombies one. I, I've seen that yeah. in the in the coming attraction, uh, but I'm not sure where else they're going to go. But you know, this is a series that they could do a lot with. Yeah, I'm trying to think of if there's any stories I'd like to see, and I, off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything. But yeah, I'm, I'm well, curious to see where it's going to go. Like the Tony Stark one, I don't know that the, that this is what it is, but I would I think you could have an interesting uh, potential if what if somebody had rescued him before the bomb exploded, that you know put the shrapnel in his heart. Right. I think that that has a lot of potential. So and then I'm trying to think of like you know which other ones I would go with. So you know we'd already have hit on Captain America, Iron Man, the Guardians. Uh, and Black Panther at that point, so I'm not sure which, where, you know, where you might go otherwise. Something with the Avengers, probably. Yeah, something like what if Ultron had won? Could be interesting. Of course, I I think that's good. that would be much bigger than a, a half an hour show <laughs> could support, but uh, you know, could be an interesting concept. I don't know. There's probably a lot of interesting ones. I'd like to see uh, what what if uh, Disney had purchased Universal earlier and had had Fantastic Four and X Men and when they were making these these stories. (laughs) And on that note, uh, I guess uh, we'll say goodbye and see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, I only had a chance to read half of it.